Amen. Well, uh, after we hopefully finish the renovation, we might be able to start a GoFundMe or some fund to get her a golf cart. Um, that'd be the second thing that we do. Y'all, if you are just joining us, we are in the middle of a Giving for His Glory campaign. And the purpose of this campaign is that we're looking to renovate our worship center. And then we even have several phases we'd love to do after that, Lord willingly. But this, this first phase is about renovating our worship center. And so we have been building up until November 13th. Well, on November 13th, we're having a dinner. If you have not signed up to be a part of that and you are a regular attender or a member of our church, I would encourage you to please do so. Um, you can sign up. There are information in your bulletin. But at that meeting, we will give pledges for our three-year commitments that we'd like to give to the church or just an upfront gift or any way that you feel like the Lord is leading you to give in that regard. Now, also along with that, we are doing a five-week sermon series on the topic of stewardship. As we're looking at, at God's Word in as comprehensive of a way as we can to see what does God's Word have to say about money? What does God's Word have to say about how we are to be stewards? And so to catch everybody up, um, or just to remind or catch them up, we're in week number three now. And in week one, we began with the sermon talking about how we are stewards of a gracious God. The, the point of the sermon was, was simply this. God is the rightful owner of everything. This is where stewardship begins. God created it all. You could say he has the patent on everything. All of it is his. But not just all of it is his. He's not just the rightful owner. He's the gracious giver of all things. He gives to us. He's an abundant provider for us. And really one of the cruxes of that sermon was the Bible tells us we will either worship our money or we will worship with our money. There's not an in-between. We will either worship our money or we'll worship with our money. But then last week we came back and we looked at 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and the sermon title was Worthy of It All. And the point of it is we looked at 1 Chronicles 29 and saw how David was talking about God, and, and he praises God for the opportunity to even be able to give. It's crazy. David's whole point is, God, if everything is yours, you could rightly demand everything. But you give us this grace. You give us this opportunity to give back to you. And we even talked about how tithing needs to be flipped on its head. God is not saying, hey, give me 10%. What God is saying is, I'm going to let you keep 90 and steward it. It's flipping it on its head of how we think about money. And we even kind of altered our uh, week one statement from we either worship our money or we worship with our money to we either worship with what God has blessed us with or we worship what God has blessed us with. And so as we move into week three, I think it's important for us to note those two foundational thoughts as we move into week three this week. But I just want to begin just by asking a question. What happens when we don't honor God with our money? What happens whenever we don't honor God with what is rightly his? You know, as much as I'd like to say that um, everybody is a tither, everybody's a giver, and I know that we have some great faithful givers in our church, the truth of the matter is this, is statistic after statistic shows us that whenever it comes to the church, most people do not give. Most people do not give back to the church. I got these statistics that are updated with 2022 uh, statistics from Vanco Payments, who is an online giving platform. That's what you need to hear the numbers. 5% of churchgoers tithe, according to this survey. 5% of people who go to church tithe. They also did a survey about church members, and they found that between 10 and 25% of church members tithe, which means that 75 to 90% of people who are members of a church say we are bought into the mission and vision of building God's kingdom, of being a part of it, do not give 
do not tithe to the local church. Out of the 247 million U.S. citizens who identify as Christians, only 1.5 million of them tithe. Friends, that's less than half of a percent. If every Christian tithed 10%, faith organizations, meaning both churches and ministries, would have an excess of $139 billion this year. In other words, there is not a ministry need, a ministry or a church need that would not be met plus some, $139 billion. Now, that's also all for the $247 million proclaiming Christians. I understand people can proclaim to be Christians and not be, but those numbers are startling, and they're startling not just because of the numbers, but they're startling in light of what the Bible has to say about money. They're startling because Jesus himself, Matthew 6, 24, he says, you cannot serve both God and money. You will serve one or the other. Now, what's odd about the topic of money is oftentimes we get uncomfortable whenever it's talked about. And the reason for that is what the Bible says is it is the thing that hits closest to our hearts. You see, the Bible speaks about money in a different way than it does any other subject. The Bible never says you can't serve both God and sex. You can't serve both God and self-image. You can't serve both God and status. You can't serve both God and work. Now, don't get me wrong. That is true, but it doesn't explicitly say it that way like it does money. Money is treated completely different than any other topic because it stands out distinctly different in God's eyes. Why is that the case? Well, friends, it's easy for us to say, you know what? I believe in God. I trust in God. But the surest sign of that is what we do with our money. There is no other more overt spiritual act than giving. Nothing. Nothing comes close. I may say, you know, are you in the Word? And you may say, you know, well, I'm in the Word. I'm reading, you know, and, and you maybe can think you're at a certain spot where maybe you're not. Or uh, how's your prayer life? I've yet to find a person who doesn't say, my prayer life's about a 6 or 7 out of 10. I feel like everybody says 6 or 7 out of 10. But if I were to ask you, where does your money go? You can know exactly because there's a paper trail. You can know exactly where your money goes. And what's scary about that is God says where your money goes, that's where your heart is. The title of the sermon this morning is Priority Problems. Priority Problems. And what I'm proposing to us this morning is simply this. The way you spend your money is the greatest indicator of what you worship. The way you spend your money is the greatest indicator of what you worship. A lack of giving is the sign of a heart that is in one of two places. Either they do not know the Lord or things have gone incredibly awry in their relationship with God. Either way, a lack of giving to the Lord is a sure sign that someone's priorities are upside down. And the issue with this is as long as our priorities are upside down, we won't be able to see how to get right side up unless we come to God's word. The questions I want to ask you this morning are simply this. Is giving to the Lord a priority of yours? Do you worship him with your money, which God calls the single greatest idol that will keep people from him? Money. To look at this topic, if you would, open with me to the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai, it's in the Old Testament in between Zephaniah and Zechariah, if that is helpful at all. If not, go to Matthew, first book of the New Testament, hang a left, and go three books, Malachi, Zechariah, and you'll get to Haggai. You may ask, why in the world would we talk about this subject and go to this discreet prophet named Haggai? Well, friends, first off, all Scripture is from our God, and all Scripture is for our good. 
beginning to end. All of it is his inspired word, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correction, and training in righteousness that we may be complete to live for him. But also what's incredible about the book of Haggai, and I'll tell you, hopefully you will see it as we walk through it, it is astounding how what God's people were going through then, how astounding, how similar it is to what we are going through right now in our world. It's astounding just the similarities of it, and Haggai has a lot to say to us this morning. You know, as I thought about this week, another reason I think it's important to go to the book of Haggai is Haggai reminds me a lot of a certain app that I have a love-hate relationship with on my phone. It's the app Alarmy, which is my morning alarm clock. I know all of you are probably like me. It's the favorite app that I have on my phone. There's nothing greater than 5 a.m. in the morning hearing it go off. You know, it makes me want to snooze it just to hear it again, right? You know, people try and take alarm clocks and make them prettier and nicer by putting nice tunes to them. Look, it ruins the song if you play your favorite song. Don't do it, right? Like, nobody likes alarm clocks, but what's funny is, is we use them because we recognize they wake us up and make us get going if we need to do something. You'll find that productive people, almost all of them, most likely, are ones who use alarm clocks. They wake up, it helps them get up and get going. Friends, what you see about the book of Haggai is that is what it is. It is an alarm clock saying, church, wake up. It's from God to his people, Israel, and I'm telling you, the, 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 the similarities are alarming for God even to us this morning saying, church, wake up to this truth. And so before we even jump in, I want to give you just a brief amount of context. What's going on? Well, if you don't know, God chose a people placed them in the promised land. They were in Egypt for 400 years in slavery. God brought them out of Egypt, brought them into the promised land. They were in the promised land. While they were there, God said, you're my people in my place. If you live by my rule, you'll experience my blessing. If you disobey how I call you to live, you won't. And unfortunately, they disobeyed. Well, eventually, God exiled them out of the promised land. But God did promise them, I will bring you back. And you can learn about that story of God bringing his people back in the books of Ezra in Nehemiah. And this is whenever Haggai happens. But let me tell you about, about what happens. So they go back to the promised land, and the problem is everything is leveled. Whenever they were sent into exile, the Babylonians came in and they wrecked the temple, they wrecked their homes, they wrecked the whole city. Everything was in shambles. Whenever they came back, one of the first things they put their mind to was the temple of God. Because the temple of God constructed was to be a visual representation of God's presence was there with them. The temple was a symbol to surrounding nations. We worship this God who is a different God. He's not an idol made of metal or gold. He is a, a God over the whole universe. And so coming back, this should be priority number one. And what you see in Ezra, in Ezra chapter 3 is it was. They begin working on the temple and they build it. Well, you see a dedication ceremony after they lay the foundation in Ezra chapter 3. And during this, something odd happens. Some of the older people begin weeping whenever they see the foundation of the temple. They weep because it wasn't as big and grand and glorious as the previous temple. They weep because they're discouraged by it. Shortly after that, people that were living around in the surrounding areas or people who were living in that land before they came back started to discourage them and threaten them about building the temple. And so they stopped. Hear that again. God put, God's people put obedience to him on pause. They stopped building. Sixteen years passed by. They rebuild everything in the city except for the temple. It still lays in shambles. And 16 years later, in the year 520 B.C., enter the prophet Haggai. Let's read together verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. 
It says, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the, Lord, the, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and you harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all of their labor. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to your word, Lord, knowing that it is the word of God. Help us be reminded, Father, that every time your word is open, it is you that is speaking. Father, please put your words in my mouth. Keep my words out of yours. Bless, challenge, reprove, and correct your people this morning. We ask all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So what's going on in this passage? What I want you to do is I want to, what I want to do is I want to walk through this, and I want to show you four points of correction that God is giving to his people. Four points of correction that God is giving to them, and I want to present it to you in a way of saying that he is sounding the alarm. He's sounding the alarm to wake them up to what they are not able to see at the moment. So four points of correction from God. The first thing that we see that's going on in the story is God sounds the alarm on their misplaced priorities. Point one, God sounds the alarm on their misplaced priorities. It's interesting, you see in verse 1, this is on the first day of the month, and we actually can attribute this to it being September 1, 520 B.C. We can almost pinpoint the date specifically. On the first day of the month, God's people should have been gathering together, and this is why the word of the Lord came today. It's for the people and for them to hear. But I want you to hear how startling the words of God are to his people. Notice again in verse 2. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people. Friends, this is really odd. You know why? Because God never talks about his people as being these people. What does he say? He calls them my people. But notice how he's indicting them from the beginning. These people say, what do they say? They say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. They're saying it's not the right time for us to build back the house of the Lord. Now, the primary reason behind this, as you may have already read, is there's a seeming economic crisis that's going on around them. And whenever economic crises happen, what happens is oftentimes we pull in and we focus on ourselves first. Which seems like it may be a good excuse, but notice what God says next. They say it's not the right time, but verse 3, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, 
And he says this, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? You see, he says, you say that the time is not right to come and to give and to build my temple, but it's odd, your actions and your own home seem to be doing just fine. He says, it's, it's odd, your actions so that you're living quite comfortably in your paneled houses. Now, to understand, you need to know what the word paneled means. There are three primary ways that we can translate this word paneled. You could translate it as they're adorning houses, they're luxurious houses, or for our sake, what I think maybe is the best way, you're comfortable houses. It's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord, but you're currently living and dwelling in comfortability in your nice, neat homes. The rebuke is clear from God, and it is direct. You have an excuse for why you aren't giving to me, yet that excuse doesn't seem to stop you from living comfortably. Now, let me say on the front end, don't hear what God is not saying. You won't find God say, hey, do not live comfortably. you find him say certain things around that, but the point is not that they're living comfortably. God doesn't say you can't have a nice house or a nice car or go on a nice vacation. He doesn't say any of that. The point is, is those can't usurp your relationship with God. The point is, is they can't be the priority. The point is, is you can't say, God, I, I, I want to prioritize these things over you. And here's the truth. I'll have it for you on the screen. The issue here is they prioritize their houses and their own personal comfort over their devotion to the Lord. They prioritize their houses and their personal comforts over their devotion to the Lord. So to them, the economy wasn't in good shape, and they did what many people do. They drew in and they focused on their own little kingdom and forgot about God's kingdom. They focused on their own houses, their own comfortabilities, Instead of focusing on God. Friends, what is the major error with this? Is it is never the right time to say it's not the right time to obey the Lord. It is always the right time to obey God and to follow his will. It is always the right time to be obedient. It is always the right time to say yes to whatever God is calling you to do. And giving to the Lord is not some optional accessory we add onto our lives as believers. This isn't like the Alumni Association is calling and asking for money, which if you're like me, I have blocked. But this is not an option. It's saying, God, you give back to him. You give to him. This is a commandment. It's supposed to be a characteristic of God's people. But they're not. What's interesting is they're talking about the economic crisis, yet they seem to be living comfortably, yet something else is odd about this passage. Even though they seem to be trying to live comfortably, their money is not sufficing. Is not sufficing. It's even though that they were holding their money tighter for themselves, they weren't even able to enjoy it. Look at verses 5 and 6. God says, now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much. I mean, they've planted a lot. They've, they've put a lot of work in, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never seem to have enough. You drink, but you never seem to have your food. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. The first point is God sounds the alarm on their misplaced priorities. The second point is God sounds the alarm on their contentment problems. God sounds the alarm on their contentment problems. Notice what God says to him. He says, consider your ways. In other words, step back and look at your actions. Look at the way that you are living. Then look at everything that you're doing. You sow much. You eat. You drink. You clothe yourselves. You earn wages but nothing seems to be fulfilling. So what do you do? You're killing yourself with work and you have little to show for it. You're doing all these different things to satisfy your pleasures and you have nothing to show for it. 
It's as though the second the money comes into the bank account, it goes right back out, and I feel like I have nothing left. You're not fulfilled, you're not satisfied, and you're not flourishing. So what has God called them to do? Work harder? Do more, do more, do more? Maybe search in different avenues? No, he says, stop and consider your ways. What does God want them to see? He wants them to see this. Though they are pursuing their own personal comforts, they're being left in want. Friends, it is a biblical truth that if you pursue joy in the things of this world, it will turn out to be sinking sand. It is empty. And even worse, as we run to find value in the things of this world, the problem with it is they never were meant to fulfill us. Everything that God created is for him and is for his glory. He allows us to experience them, but you only can experience them as he wants you to as you give glory to him. Because the worst part of this is by nature, we worship other things. And whenever we do that, we make them idols in our lives. And as long as there are idols in our lives, we will never be fulfilled. We will never be content. We will never be happy. I've heard it said, as the great scholar Jim Carrey, a lot of people didn't laugh at that at the first service, but the great scholar Jim Carrey made the comment, I wish everybody could make money, get rich, and recognize it is not the answer. David Foster Wallace, you may have heard of him before. He's an American novelist. He was a teacher at a few universities. But he was asked to give a commencement speech at Kenyon College one time. I read through most of the transcript this week because if you think I talk for a long time, he beats me by a long shot. But as I, as I read through it, there were several things that stood out very heavily to me. Now, this is a man who, as far as I know, is not a Christian. Just by reading what he said, it seems very clear that he's not a Christian. But he, in his argument, he talks about it, it makes sense why people believe in God. And he says it this way. I want you to hear what he says. I have it for you on the screen. He says, everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship. In other words, you don't make the choice to worship or not worship. You make the choice of what are you going to worship. By nature, we are worshipers. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you. Worship power, and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb yourself to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Don't miss this. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful. It is that they're unconscious. They are our default setting. He says what's evil about them is this is what we naturally gravitate towards and what we don't realize is they will not fill the void in our hearts. This is a guy who doesn't even proclaim to know Jesus, and he gets it. He gets the idea that God's word says over and over again. If you seek for fulfillment in this life, you won't find it. I've heard this quote before. Maybe you have as well. Money will buy a bed, but it won't buy rest. It'll buy you education, but not wisdom. It'll buy you companions, but not friends. It'll buy you a house, but not a home. It'll buy you amusements, but not happiness. It'll buy you religion, but not salvation. Friends, this is one of the reasons it has frustrated me a lot of my life whenever I've heard pastors or Christian leaders apologize for talking about money. Friends, God has a lot to say about money, and he says it for your good. 
God says, this is for you. If you want to experience life, if you want to have fulfillment, understand what I say about money because if not, it will take your heart and it will not give you what it promises. It will take your heart and it will lead you from one idol to another idol to another idol to another idol to over and over again feeling incomplete and searching for answers, answers in other areas. So what is God saying? He's saying, stop. Consider your ways. Your efforts aren't changing anything about your joy, but he also wants them to see something else. Look at verses 9 through 11. He says, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, don't miss it. I am the one who blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all of their labors. In other words, everything that you're looking to find fulfillment in, there is drought in it right now. This leads to the third point, the third alarm that God is crying to his people. He sounds the alarm on their misplaced priorities, on their contentment problems. And third, God sounds the alarm on their futile efforts. God sounds the alarm on their futile efforts. What you see here is people who are saying, we don't have enough. This isn't pleasing. This isn't that. And what you see is they keep thinking, well, maybe the problem is, is we need to do this, that, or the other. But friends, part of our human condition is we can oftentimes be so blind to what is right in front of us. I experienced this a lot with, with one of my sons, specifically, our youngest kid, Abram. He loves to play with uh, Avenger action figures. We have a bunch of them. He loves to play with blocks. And oftentimes what I see with him is he'll play with these toys, and, and sometimes he'll try and get one of his Avengers to stand up, and it just keeps falling over. And I'm like, all you have to do is pull the leg. I mean, it's just a very simple, easy fix, and you'll get it. Or he'll be doing blocks, and they keep falling. And what I'll notice is he'll just start trying harder and harder and harder until he gets angry until oftentimes, and Emily can vouch for me, he will scream, it's not working. It's not working. What's odd is I told Emily, I got a fresh example of this this morning. He goes to the backyard because he, he left uh, some of his Avengers outside during the night. And he went to go out our back door in order to get outside. Well, we have two locks on our back door. Abram knows this. He locks and unlocks our back door all the time. Well, trying to hurry to go get the Avengers, he unlocks one of them and he pulls and it's not working. And I hear him screaming, it's not working. I walk in there. He's got both hands, lean back, pulling like this. And I'm like, bro, step back. And Abram looks. You haven't, you haven't unlocked this. Step back and, and consider. Y'all, this is what God is saying to them. He's saying you're exerting more effort and more effort and more effort, and you're killing yourself, but what you don't realize, the reason why you don't have what you're looking for is because of me. Or to say it a different way, it's because of you, and I am the one who's trying to show you that. Maybe if we just worked harder, have more comfort food or drinks or clothes. Maybe if we just earned more, none of it works because God is the one who's behind it all. You know what this tells me? You know what this tells us? Friends, hear this clearly. Sometimes economic issues aren't because of a government. Sometimes they're because of a people. Sometimes issues that we perceive around us, crises we perceive around us, aren't a crisis out there. They're a crisis in here. And sometimes as we look at the world around us, for them, they could look, they're still in a land that's still occupied and owned by other people. They could blame it on all sorts of things, but God says, no, it's me who's doing this. Here's the truth that they were missing. God disciplines his children when they persist in disobedience. And he does it for their good. 
You show me an undisciplined kid, and I'll show you one that's just not fun to be around. You show me an undisciplined kid, and you'll see whenever they become an adult, they become oftentimes very difficult to be around. Hebrews chapter 12, God talks about him as a father to his sons and daughters, and he says, I will discipline them as my children because I love them. He says in Hebrews 12 and 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. As you hear his discipline and you walk with him. Friends, if you don't feel the discipline of God, that's a grand concern because he says, I discipline all of my children. Meaning as you're looking for the things in this world, you will understand something's off. And he'll call you back to himself. God never blesses disobedience, and he wants his people to see that. But they're, they're blinded to the obvious fact that's right in front of them, which is odd because it's the very reason they were sent in exile in the first place. God wasn't their priority. And yet here they are. They come back 16 years in. They're already making the exact same mistakes. What were their errors? Well, one of the temples should have been a first thought for them, but instead it was an afterthought. You see, they would say, For themselves, they would say, God, we can't give to you because we don't have excess. And don't miss it. God says, no, you don't have excess because you don't give to me. We don't have excess, so we can't give. He says, no, you don't have excess because you don't give. The solution, stop and consider your ways. Which leads to verses 7 and 8. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Here we see very simple instructions of how all of this can change. He says, just obey me, which leads to the fourth alarm he has here. First, their misplaced priorities. He's sounding the alarm on their contentment problems, sounding the alarm on their futile efforts. And fourth, he's sounding the alarm on their greatest need. He's sounding the alarm on their greatest need. Prioritize me. Obey me. Me, stop busying yourselves with your own kingdom and focus on mine. Which is why he says again, consider your ways. Consider what you're doing. And then he says something so simple, guys. Go up, get wood, build the house of the Lord that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. The craziest thing about that is do you see how simple that actually is? Guys, hear me, there are few things in the Bible that are not simple for you to understand. They're simple in many ways. Whenever God calls you to obedience, usually it's very simple. Do this. It's simple. But the problem is, is we struggle to do that which is simple. Because to obey God, to do that which is simple, you have to have faith in him. You have to believe in him. You have to trust him. And he's telling them, seek to obey me first. Seek to honor me first. Seek to put me first. But his people were missing him. Friends, in light of this text, I want to ask you one question and then help you flesh out the answer to the question. And the question is this. I'll have it for you on the screen. Is God, his will and his ways, your number one priority? Is God, his will and his ways, your number one priority? I would tell you the same way that God told the Israelites. God's not interested in what you say. God says, stop and consider your ways. How are you living? He doesn't say, hey, what are your intentions of what you hope to do? No, no, no. He doesn't say, consider your intentions. He says, consider your ways. Not your justifications, not your excuses. 
Consider how you are actually living. Are, is it possible that there are areas in your life where you're saying, God, the time is not right for me to do this yet? Remember, it is always the right time to obey God's word and follow him. Delayed obedience is disobedience. They're the same thing. Delayed obedience is disobedience. So the call from God to you is examine yourselves. And I want to help you briefly with that. I want to ask you just in your time, is God a priority in your life? Don't tell me, I'm asking you, based on your daily schedule, is he a priority? Well, how would you know? Do you spend time with him? Do you desire to know what he has to say to you? God says this is like daily bread. It's more needed than food. Do you pray to him daily? Do you just spend time with him daily? Now, I understand. People say, Merrick, you don't understand. Time seems to just go away. It just dissipates. I don't seem to have time. There seems to be this I have to go to and this I have to go to and this I have to go to. So my question with you is, is it possible that maybe you don't have time because you're not giving it to him? Is it possible to you that maybe you're, you're, you're like a chicken with your head cut off, going from one thing to the next to the next to the next because you're not prioritizing God? Go to your energy. You may say, you know what, I've heard people say this, and I still just can't wrap my brain around it. I don't feel called to serve at the moment. Friends, hear me. If you repented and surrendered your life to Jesus, you said yes to service. The Bible does not say, well, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, if you're a super disciple. If you're in this life stage, if you have the time. No, no, it says, if you are a disciple of mine, this is what you should be about, building my kingdom up here. What is Jesus' prayer? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why do Christians stay here after they come to faith in Jesus? To bring that kingdom here. We should be asking in a, in a church that's our size, guys, we should never have a need for volunteers, ever. But hear me, hear me. I understand what people say. Merrick, you don't understand. I'm exhausted. I'm running from this to this to this to this. I would ask you, is it possible that you're exhausted because you're not giving your energy to him? Is it possible that that's the way you feel because he's not your priority? Moving to the last thing, and where I'll spend most of my time in light of our sermon series and in light of the story itself. What about in your money? Is giving to God a priority of yours? God says giving to me should be your first thought, not an afterthought. Y'all, something so, so different about giving is we all do it. The question is, is where do we give? To build his kingdom or to build our own little kingdoms? Let me explain to you like this. Being givers are bred into our DNA. Literally, it's bred into our DNA. You want to know how I know? Go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You have Adam and Eve. You put them in the garden. They're there. They sin. They get cast out of the garden. And what's odd is, is you don't have a, a, a claim from God to say, hey, give to me until after Abraham. It doesn't say sacrifice to me, it doesn't say any of those things, but what's odd is you get to chapter 4 of Genesis, and what do Cain and Abel do with what they have? They give. It's odd. It's odd. You have Abel who gives from the first fruit of his produce, giving his best to God. Why? He wasn't commanded to do that. Because we give to that which we worship. We put first priority and make sure to take care of certain things whenever they are what we worship. 
What was the problem with Cain's sacrifices? Well, Cain saw what Abel was doing, and Cain just gave some to God, and God didn't honor it. And so he got mad and killed his brother. Friends, hear me, from the beginning of time, there's something bred into our DNA to show us what we give ourselves to is what we worship. But what's crazy about the topic of giving is it is not any less simple than what God told them. Go to the hill, cut down some wood, bring it back down, build the temple. Easy, simple. And the same is true for us. God's instructions for us are very simple. I deserve your first fruits, tithes, give to me. God calls his people to live cheerfully, generously, and sacrificially. And before I talk any more about that, I understand there are plenty of people who respond by saying, Mary, you don't understand. I can't afford to give. And what I would tell you, is it possible that maybe, no, you just don't think that you can afford to give? What's, what's odd is that's exactly what they're saying. We can't afford. It's not the right time. We can't do this yet. And God's saying, no, 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 you can't not do it. The issue here is even more odd is that these people actually do have excess. They just don't think they do. He says, you live in your paneled houses, your comfortable houses, your nice little kingdoms that you've set up for yourself, and yet you don't give to me. Don't tell me that you don't have enough. You may say back to me, well, Merrick, we'll, we'll give whenever we're able to. We just can't afford to right now. It's just not the time. We can't give right now. We have so many issues that are coming up around us. Does that not sound exactly like what the people of Israel are saying? Friends, hear me. Whenever times get tough, the first thing you cut out is what's on the bottom of the totem pole. <clears throat> the thing that we ultimately care about least, right? If we sacrifice God first, that means that's the least on the totem pole. Unfortunately, oftentimes we're very quick to sacrifice uh, God or to sacrifice other things that we should be giving to and to focus on our own priorities or our own concerns. And I get it, people will still say, Merrick, you don't understand our financial situation. We can't tithe or we can't give over and above. <clears throat> we just can't seem to get on top of things. It seems like there's a hole in our bank account. I would ask you if that's the case, is it possible? Is it possible that if you call yourself a believer and you feel like the money comes in and there's a hole out the other side and it goes back out, is it possible that maybe God's saying, I'm the one that's doing it? Is it possible that maybe to you God's saying, wake up and see that you're missing out on what I'm trying to show you? Wake up and see that you're missing out on what I want to give to you. There's just several truths we have to understand, and it will change the way we view giving. The first truth is this. You'll give to God when you understand what it means not to do so. The Bible says very clearly, not giving to God is like robbing him. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, many people know this story. They know the verses, or they've heard it taught on before. God's speaking to his people, unfortunately, after this incident. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? God says, will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? I say, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Y'all, what's crazy about this whole story 
is if you go back and read the first part of Malachi, God's people were wicked. God's people were struggling in all sorts of areas. Literally, Malachi 1, God says, I wish there was somebody among you who would shut the doors to the worship center so you wouldn't go inside and defame my name with your lackluster worship. And then he talks about something else and something else and something else, but the only spot where he says, test me. Even in the midst of all of their disobedience, he says, test me with your money. Why? Because where our money is, it's the greatest indicator of what? Where our hearts are. God knew, test me with this, it takes faith. It is an overt, clear action. If you do this, I will get my people's hearts. The problem is, again, even with them, they didn't. They would say, I can't afford to give. God says, no, you can't not to. They say, I'll give when I have excess, friends. Maybe God is saying to you, give, and then you will have excess. Now, the disclaimer of this is this is not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. He's not a cosmic candy man where you just give it to him, and he just throws down blessings on your life. Sometimes the blessings are more spiritual than they are material, and trust me, those go a lot further. Sometimes it's learning contentment and where God has you and being able to see what you have and give thanks for what you do have rather than constantly being fearful of what you don't. Friends, the baseline of what were the Old Testament they were called to give was 10%. First fruits, before it goes to the government, before it goes to anybody, give me 10%, give me your best. And what I would tell you is we are called to do that, if not more. The New Testament calls us to give cheerfully, generously, and sacrificially. Friends, that kind of giving demands faith. But isn't that the point? Isn't that the point of our giving? If we're not exercising faith in our giving, it doesn't matter how much you give. I would ask you, are you really giving if there is no faith involved? J.D. Greer is a pastor of a church in North Carolina who I follow fairly closely. And he has a statement that he makes at their church often, and I think it's just profound and it's simple. He says, we constantly call our people to live sufficiently and give extravagantly. But the problem with all of our hearts is by nature, we are okay with giving sufficiently and living extravagantly. We struggle with having those the right way, living sufficiently, giving extravagantly. We struggle with giving sufficiently and living extravagantly. Friends, whenever you realize what it means to not give, I think it will help you change the way you think about it. Not giving to God, he says, you're robbing me. He's saying, you don't realize that I'm the one that's blessing you. Second truth you need to understand is that you'll give when you decide to trust God and obey his word. That's when you will give. You cannot faithfully give without trusting in him and placing your faith in him. God tells them, my temple should be the forethought, the first thought, not the afterthought. You know, God says something very similar to us. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't be anxious about your life. How many of us need to hear that today? He says, don't be anxious about what you wear, about what you eat, about what you drink, about your needs. Don't be worried about all of those things. Instead, he says this, Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know, one of the first rules of preaching that I was told very early on is never use the word things as your point. Don't say, hey, I have three things I want to tell you today about tithing. I have three things because things just kind of means meh, right? Like it doesn't really define anything. Give them something more descriptive. Things just makes it seem kind of menial, right? Isn't it funny that that's the way God treats the stuff that we care about? 
He says, focus on me first, and I'll give you those things. Those are menial. I am God. I can provide. I can take care of you. I have the patent to it all. I'm the gracious giver. I'm the abundant provider. Trust me. Let knowing me, following me, and serving me be your number one priorities, and let me worry about the these things. Whenever it comes to giving, the simple question is this. Do you trust him or do you not? You'll give cheerfully, generously, and sacrificially whenever you prioritize his kingdom over your own. When you prioritize his will over your own, when you prioritize obedience over everything, whenever you prioritize trusting him, you will give. Now hear me, I'm not calling you to give a certain number. I'm not arguing for any certain thing like that. I'm arguing present your first fruits, your best before God, and offer it to him. What I've found, especially if it comes to finances, you seek God, he makes it clear what he wants you to give. That's been true in our lives. I've seen it in plenty of other people's lives. God speaks clearly. I know some of you might be saying, Merrick, this is tough. I want you to hear me. If anybody understands, trust me, I understand. I was blessed to grow up in a home where my dad taught me tithing from the very first time I got a paycheck. I'll never forget. He woke me up, a freshman in high school, drove me to the clerk of court's office, got me a job there. It literally was miserable. I had to pull books out, and I put all of their, their book records in digital format. So literally, this is all I did for hours upon hours all summer. I'll never forget the first paycheck I got. I was like, man, this is like blood money. Like I did everything I could to get this. My dad drove me straight to the bank, made me cash it, and said, pull out 10%. And on Sunday, you put that in the plate. I can remember thinking like, wow, really? You know my story. You know I don't become a believer until later in life, but I can't remember a time in my life I have ever not tithed, even for wrong reasons, because it was for wrong reasons before, but it's because my dad showed me. I got into college, and in college, you think you don't have money, but man, it's crazy how much money you blow in college. I felt it. I saw it. Whenever push comes to shove is whenever you first get married, especially if you have a kid very early on in marriage. That's whenever you really find out, do I believe this stuff? Friends, I'll never forget. Emma and I are married for two and a half years. We're about to have our first son, Ellis, January of 2016. January 14 is a distinguished day in my life because it was a day whenever I felt like God said no to a possible job that he was giving me. And I found out that the job that I was looking at at the church I was currently serving at, they were saying no, I wasn't going to have my job after May, two days before my first son was born. You may say, well, so what? Well, the so what was I was making $20,000 a year. No lie, I would get calls often of people saying, you're $8,000 below the poverty line. Emily couldn't work. She didn't want to work. We couldn't pay for child care, one, but two, we didn't want to pay for child care. She said, I want to be the one to stay home and raise my kid. I'm like, I'm with you with that. We started that before. We want to continue and do that. And so that's what we sought to do. So I got an extra job waking up at 5 a.m., going to a gym, working a few hours, but didn't make a whole lot of money from that. You know, I will never forget that season of my life, knowing my job was ending in May, not knowing where we were going, living on 20 grand and living with her. And we just had a kid. And she'll tell you, it's probably the one time in my life I've kept a secret from her. Two days before our first son was born, I wasn't about to tell her I don't have a job come May. And I can remember with my job where I worked, I had all Wednesday morning free. And every single Wednesday, I would go to the woods that were by our house. And I'm telling you, I would cry out to God. When you have a kid, it changes everything. Say, God, I, I can't provide for him. What am I going to do? What are we going to do? I'll do whatever, whatever it is. I'll do it. 
was crazy, y'all, for the next month, we had a random gift card come into our mail. And people drop stuff off randomly at our house. We go out to restaurants. We have several of them documented where we go out and we'd eat and we find out somebody paid for our meal. It's like over and over and over again, God said, don't worry about that. Just trust me. A month later, God gave us a dream job. There for four years, four years after that, God gave me my dream job. I get to be a pastor of a local church. Friends, I could tell you over and over again the stories of what God has done. I'll tell you an even closer one. The Giving for His Glory campaign, where we're asking people to give over and above, not to take away from the general fund because we need it. It's how we do ministry. It's how we're able to hire an associate pastor. It's how we're able to hire me, a student pastor, a children's minister, KKLC. We, we, we function all of our ministries and missions under this. The idea that building a building is taking away from that is crazy. We don't, we don't pull from that fund. But guys, we're asking people to give over and above to the Giving for His Glory campaign, and we know we need to lead out in this. So we've been praying through it. And we came to a point where we had an idea, this is how much God wants us to give monthly. And we knew it would be a sacrifice. Well, in the month before I had to actually tell our directions team what we were going to give as a testimony to our nine-person team, we had stuff happen with Emily's car. We had bills come in from doctor's appointments. We had all sorts of things come in. And we saw, and she will attest to it, it was like our funds just dropped out the bottom. I can remember one point we were asking, can we still give what we feel like God put on our heart to give? And we were questioning it. And one day we get a something in the mail, open it up, and we don't know who it's from, but it's the single largest gift that anybody's given us personally since we've been at this church, and it was just a gift card for a certain amount, the exact amount that we've been praying about to give towards giving for his glory. I showed him, and I said, he's got us. He's got us. Friends, hear me. If you want stories of faith in your life, you have to walk by. I'm not telling you it's going to be easy. If anything, I'm telling you the exact opposite. But what I'm telling you is you come out to the other side and you will go, oh, my gosh, God is incredible. For many of us this morning, we struggle to know if God is real. I would tell you maybe that's because you're not exercising faith to have stories to know that he's real. If you rely on yourself, why would he show you anything different? Friends, I would encourage you. I would challenge you. Is God, his will and ways your number one priority in this? And when it is, what I will tell you, you won't just consider your ways, you will respond. And I'm calling you to respond today. I'm calling you to respond, asking you, how do you need to respond today? As the band comes up to play, I just want to ask you to think through these different things. The first thing I want to ask you is the same way God said to the Israelites, consider your ways. I want to ask you this morning, consider your own ways. The first step in all of this is maybe this morning, and I would assume this morning, there are plenty of us who need to repent of our lack of obedience in this area. Maybe for some of us this morning, we do not give it all, and you need to repent saying, God, I recognize that I'm being disobedient here. For some this morning, maybe you're giving to God just for the hopes of receiving something from him. You need to repent of the motive. Maybe where I've been lately, what my prayer has been, maybe you've been giving without worshiping God. Saying, God, I'm thankful for you. I recognize you bless me abundantly. Maybe you're giving without thanksgiving. Friends, God cares more about our hearts than he does our money. He took five loaves of bread and two fish and fed thousands of people. He doesn't need our money. He wants our hearts. And with that, you see, comes our money and our resources. And only by giving can you see how much you do have rather than how much you don't. How do you need to repent this morning? 
Along with that, I would call you not just to think about it, but if you repent and you know it, act today. For some of you, you're a member or a regular attender of this church, and yet you do not give to our church. Hear me, today needs to be your first day of your new commitment. I will give to the church where I am bought in and I am here. For some of you, today you've let circumstances become your excuse for not giving. Today needs to be the day you say, I'm not going to let it be an excuse anymore. I'm going to trust God by giving as he calls me to. Maybe for some of you, you've gotten out of the habit of giving just because you've stopped. And today you need to repent and come back to God and say, God, I will give to you. I would ask you, are you sacrificing giving to God before your own comforts if you still say, no, no, I just can't? You need to prioritize and trust him by stepping out in faith. For some of you, as you think about that, it means you need to begin giving now. You need to make the commitment today to start doing this. But for some of you, God will put it on your heart. And I believe he does not speak uh, not clearly in this area. He speaks very clearly. He may be telling you, you know you've been disobedient. You have not listened to my voice. And you need to go back and recognize how much you have not been giving. And you need to backlog and start from there. I don't know how God is calling you to, but maybe he's telling you that this morning. For some of you, you are using your life situation as a reason not to give. I'm a college student. I'm a young married. Hear me, y'all. God never says while you're in these areas of your life where you don't have as much, don't give. Actually, he says if you're faithful with this little bit, then I know you'll be faithful with much. Honestly, maybe in the times whenever we don't have much, it says more about our hearts than whenever we do. We found that to be the case in our lives. For some of you need to recognize you're called to tithe just like anyone else, and I'll ask you, will you trust the Lord with that and do it? And lastly, for some of you, you need to recognize that your giving is not affecting anything about your life. You may be giving, but you're not doing so sacrificially. You're doing it comfortably. I would ask you, are you, going, are you giving sufficiently and living extravagantly, or are you living sufficiently and giving extravagantly? Maybe today you need to up what you are giving to the church. Maybe today God puts it on your heart to say, I need to give more because I know I can give more. I know I can help with this more. Maybe today you need to make a new commitment to how much you'll give to the church. And after all of that, maybe today you need to start praying about what can we give to the Giving for His Glory campaign. Friends, buildings and missions are not mutually exclusive. If that's the case, let's sell all our stuff and go remote. But we know buildings do matter. Maybe you need to start thinking about that and asking God, God, show me how much do you want me to give to this? Regardless, I would tell you, reprioritize. Trust God with your finances. Worship in giving, and I pray today maybe it's the wake-up call. I'll tell you in your bulletin and on the screen, you'll see how you can give to the church here. If you're a visitor, trust me, I'm not telling you to do this this morning. But if you're a regular tender or a member, or if this is where you call your church home, I would challenge you. If you're not, here's your ways to give. The information is there. The information's on the screen. During this time, I want you just to sit. And for some of you, the way you need to respond is you need to get online and make your commitment to give now. Maybe you need to write the check or pull out the cash, whatever you need to do, but respond that way now. And lastly, before we begin singing... I'd be remiss if I didn't say, we often don't recognize the real issue in our lives in a lot of ways. One primary problem with that is their issue with them is the presence of God wasn't even with them. They've been removed 16 years and they didn't even notice it. Friends, maybe for some of you this morning, the problem isn't about money. The problem is your heart. 
And maybe for some of you this morning, you, you maybe can relate to the Israelites. You feel empty in your relationship with God, so you run after maybe more attendance or maybe get into a Bible study or maybe pray more, maybe do this or do this or do this, and you still feel empty. I would ask you, is it possible that maybe you do because your heart is not his? Is it possible that maybe you're trying to run to catch up in a race that you have not even begun? Friends, I'd ask you, do you know Jesus? Maybe this morning is the day that you need to repent and place your faith in him. I would tell you, you can do that this morning. At this time, as they play, remain seated and respond however you feel led to do so.